Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is my truth. Tell me yours. On this episode, I sat down with Jonathan Blakesley. Jonathan is a musician, a songwriter, and oftentimes most well-known as the proprietor and kind of brain behind White Heron Tea in Portsmouth. And even if you've never been to their cafe, you've, you may have seen their tea in a lot of other restaurants on the seacoast and further out. Uh, Jonathan is someone that I've known for quite some time. It's, it's funny because we, we've sort of commiserated good-naturedly about being the siblings of more well-known people. Jonathan is Dan Blakesley's brother, my brother, uh, Christopher Chase runs a recording studio. So a lot of people, it, it takes them a little while and be like, oh, are you related to so-and-so? And Jonathan and I have kind of joked about that through the years. So, you know, I was saying I, I took a small sense of pride in that I got Jonathan Blakesley onto my podcast before Dan Blakesley. So, but um, yeah, this was a really good time. Uh, went over to Jonathan's house in Elliot, served me some white heron tea, of course. And uh, yeah, we talked about music mostly. It was a it was a really cool conversation. Enjoy. Yeah, other than the one that I recorded earlier today with. Uh, Judy Perrington, who is the founder of Seacoast Roller Derby, um, everyone who I had never met before today, mm-hmm. everyone I've sat down with, uh, is someone that I know before. So it's not like it's not like I'm necessarily interviewing people. I don't have like I actually don't have any <coughs> questions. It's just it's just more a conversation with creative people. Uh, I mean, before we started recording, you were talking about some some music you were working on. I mean, you're a musician, but you're, I mean, I think m- more people know you as for 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 your tea in your tea house. Um, so far, yes. Yeah, <laughs> so far it's only it's. I mean, well, you've been you've been doing music longer than you've been brewing tea or yeah well the the thing about music for me is that i i got started it's actually one of my first bands uh around here was actually a band with dan my brother Mm -hmm. and uh we we were called darjeeling and at the time as far as i knew of course there there wasn't internet to research all that stuff but i we may have been the original darjeeling um, but now there's another Darjeeling, so right half the half the band names I've ever had and abandoned are now other bands. Well, I would imagine like at some point, I mean, because there are so many bands out there. There there have been so many bands out there. Yep. Um, at some point, we're just going to run out of names. You know, words in the yeah. combinations of words in the English language. Well, it's well, it's true, and it's kind of. Um, it really calls, you know, it, as I, in a way, as I started mentioning to you earlier, it's kind of like I, for my entire life, I've always had bands and I've never performed under my own name. Yeah. And um, as it gets harder to come up with 
band names I find interesting and would like that are available. It's also, it brings something to mind. I was reading um, uh, part of a short interview with Amy Mann yesterday, and she was saying that one of the, she feels like one of the blessings of getting older is realizing that it's not actually that important to be cool right <laughs> so she said when we're when we're young we all we're all too concerned about uh, our cool quotient and then you right. know with maturity it's like you know we're focused more on the the music and whatever it is that we're we're trying to create and right. letting things speak for themselves so it's uh it, it may be time for me to venture out with my own name for once hang, hang up the cool the cool hat well that was that was a really i mean it's interesting was that was it the the magnet cover story uh no it's i've had it in my car but i haven't read it i just happened to i think it was i don't know you're welcome i'm not sure where it came up originally it was it was a little video link i saw through uh, sonic bids okay online it was it was a short segment but yeah it was interesting because um you know Probably when I first heard of Amy Mann was when I was in high school. Yeah, uh, which makes me old apparently. But uh, but you know, was it, she solo at that point, or no, was she with no, Till she, Tuesday? She was she was Till Tuesday, and um, and you know, I think she's coming to the music hall this year. And mm-hmm. I haven't really thought about Amy Mann in a long time, but you know, to me, it's very refreshing to, to you know to like actually just watching that short little video hearing her talk about her art and kind of like her you know as she feels her art has matured um i don't even know what she sounds like now but i I feel more interested in what she sounds like the last i mean she i like amy man but i would say i'm i'm a casual fan at best um i got into her through the magnolia soundtrack yeah because she did like i mean there's I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Um, she was, uh, it's it's one of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, and he always uses music in a really interesting way in his films, mm-hmm. but um, the the bulk of it, I want to say, I mean, there's, you know, there's there's original score in it as well, but all the songs in the movie, except for two Super Tramp songs, are all Amy Mann songs, and mm-hmm. some of them were existing songs, some of them were ones that she composed specifically for it, and... Uh, there's there's a scene in the movie where it's not because it's not a musical, but it's a it's a scene kind of a pivotal scene in the movie where all the characters sort of break the fourth wall and are all start singing along to an Amy Mann song. They're not together, yeah. so it looks like a music video, but it was very interesting in that I was like, well, what's you know? And I knew, I think I think probably the only Till Tuesday song I had heard at that point was Voices Carry, sure. uh, but I was like, oh, that was interesting. And I also I was kind of drawn in by. The fact that she was a solo singer songwriter, but her first instrument was bass rather than mm-hmm. guitar. Because usually, if someone is a solo yeah. artist, you know, it's usually guitar or or a keyboard of some yeah. sort. So I thought that was interesting, and then I was like, and she might be the only person that I've ever seen who could actually make a rat tail look cool back in the day. Back in the day. I never had one. Yeah. There's still time, man. You still got a, I don't a full think, head of hair. I still have a full head of hair. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, when you were talking about band names and finally recording under your band name, 
or, or under your your name um has there been any sort of hesitation before now just because your brother has recorded under his name or is there anything no not really i i think um i think one of the things for me that has kind of felt like a challenge in the past is i have a lot of musical interests yeah and i've played a lot of different you know when i was in portland oregon i played upright bass uh mm-hmm. in free jazz ensembles sometimes i played like in jazz like ballad trio formats uh yeah. but I, then at one point i had an indie rock band out there and when i came home i had a band with um mike walsh here and tom keith called trio and compass which was kind of jazz oriented then i did a s- soloish thing for rpm then yeah. i had, you know what was so, the name for that uh, that was actually that was that was under my own name, but I, yeah. I never released it. it. To me, it felt like an exercise. But uh, huh. interestingly, uh, there are tunes that were written at that point. That my first RPM, I think, was about eight years ago. Yeah, and a lot of those tunes, I don't know where they came from because I didn't. Here's one of the things that's funny is I definitely have a few guitars now, and and I play guitar that's my main thing now yeah um when i moved home from oregon i did not own a guitar really even though like and dan will tell this sometimes too it's like i taught him his first three chords he's yeah i feel like in a lot of ways he's a better guitarist than i am but um but when i you know when i was out west after i think i just got kind of got burnt out on the rock scene and so i sold all of my guitar gear and i bought a really nice upright bass and that's all I played for about five years. Yeah. And so when I moved home, and I still have it, it's just the room down the hall. But Dan gave me an, a, one of his Yamaha acoustic guitars. Mm-hmm. And to make sure that, because I'm notorious uh, for trading gear and stuff like that. So he etched in the side of the headstock to my brother, Jonathan Love Dan. Right. So I still have it. It's up on the wall. It right. still plays, can't get rid plays of it. fine. Yeah. No, it's no, it's fun. I actually, sometimes I... Um, but the cool thing is, all the tunes for my first RPM were written on that guitar. Oh, cool. Because that's the only guitar I had. Right. Um, so, but yeah, it's kind of like, I think, yeah, why I haven't really released anything under my name prior is because it it's just this whole feeling of, uh, you know, for, for any artistic person, who who are you? Right. Right? You know, we're all trying to find ourselves. And, um, and I think I've discovered for myself, at least I feel like, I, you know, I have, I have a couple of bands, you know, the lookbacks that I've been playing with for a couple of years, which is kind of like, I don't know. Surf meets roots rock, right. um, and then this other project that um, don't play as often now, but uh, Tiger Belly, which was all kind of instrumental surf soul jazz. Um, but you know, I just realized it's kind of like it's just like as a as a painter for yourself. It's kind of like whatever you put out is you, right? You know, sure. And so, but I think in the past I always felt like, oh, gee, I I really have to stick to a genre, but I have I have an interesting story about um, that kind of helped give me, right? I feel like it helped give me some license to stop being so hard on myself yeah. about uh, changing things up. Um, do you know what Radiohead's original band name was? I might, but I can't think of what it is. It wasn't that cool. 
It was, I think they were called On a Friday. Huh. And what it was is because apparently that's when they got together to rehearse. Right. And somewhere, or it's it's worth, go home and look up on the, on the net, um, Radiohead. And if you can find some of their early, early stuff, it was like most of the same guys that are in Radiohead now. Right. But they sounded like a college funk band. Interesting. They or you know they could they sounded like they were trying to find their their thing. Right. And um, it's you know I've gone back and forth with um, I, I'm a sort of Radiohead fan. It's like I you know I think for a while you know I liked their early rock thing, and then I remember when Kid A came out, I went and bought it, and I got home, and I'm like, what is this? And then yeah. I was like. Two weeks later, I felt blown away by the same right. record, and then Amnesiac came out, and um, I haven't kept track of their last few albums, but but I, I really respect the whole you know sh- uh, shape shifting and sure kind of, we're 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 the transformer generation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're so. robots in disguise. <laughs> just I just I just came from the movies uh, before coming to your house, and uh, it was a preview for the the, the newest. Transformer movie. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, you can tell it costs like two hundred million dollars to make, and it's gonna make, you know, probably three times that, if not more. But I'm like, who really enjoys these just loud, bombastic, just you know, yeah. like, you know? I mean, and Transformers aren't the only type of movies like that. I mean, I, you know, I went and saw Alien Covenant, which was the sixth alien film and it was fine but I, I was like was there anything really artistic in this and not everything has to be but sure. it's I, I mean I basically walked away from it I was like alright well I just consumed a product I was I, I was a good American for the afternoon I, yeah. I spent some money to to partake of a product that you know had been created but it didn't it didn't inspire anything in me so i don't know yeah what's you've probably had this experience as well i'm trying to remember for myself you know the feeling of like a film that you loved so much when you were like 18 or in your in your young 20s yeah. and you rewatch it now how many of those movies and some are just great movies some are great and then some of them you're like oh um I think it's more painful the ones that you love as a child that you watch and but it's weird because some of them you can intellectually see it and say this is not a good film but I love it and then there are some that you're like oh this had an effect on me at that age but it doesn't now I mean there's some movies when I was I mean I rewatched The Champ mm-hmm. do you remember that that John Voight wow. Rick Schroeder movie uh that, that one's terrible. But then I watched The Black Stallion about a year ago. Black Stallions. That's a gorgeous film. It's still great. So great. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, there are, there were definitely movies that, like, when I was, like, 20, 21 that I thought were just cutting edge and amazing. And I watched them. I'm like, this is pretentious dog shit. Like, I'm trying to remember. Um, there, are, there, it, there are also some movies that are kind of, like, universally acclaimed that, you know, I sit down and watch them, and I'm like, I guess. Like, uh, Raging Bull to me is one of the the like. It's 
boring to me. It's and and maybe I don't get it. I don't know if that's. I, I haven't. Favorite. I have actually haven't seen. It. I've seen a lot of a lot of movies, but yeah. I, like um, Scarface is another one that I think is completely overrated. There's still some though that every time I watch them. Uh, have you ever seen the Emerald Forest? Yes. Oh my God! What a great yeah. film, and based on a true story, I think. Uh, parts of it, yeah, yeah, parts of it, and um, yeah. I mean, it's it's beautiful. I mean, and John Borman is. Even if I'm, he's one of the guys, the director who. Even when I'm not necessarily on board with the story, doesn't grab me. It just he takes you to, you know. I mean that one, you know, the Amazon. So you know, it's yeah. it's. Um, but it just takes you to these parts of the world that you never would have seen before. You know, certainly at that point. I mean, he did uh, he did Deliverance as well, and he did. Um, did you ever see the Mosquito Coast? Yeah, yeah, he he did that yeah. as well. Um, well, and really, I mean, for us old people, I, you're younger than me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the because you're older for, than and Dan, right? Yeah. Although, yeah. although sometimes you know when I ask people who's older, they think he's older. So, but barely. I, I'm it's, just a year and a half older. I was so. gonna say it's only a, it's only a couple of years, and right now, because I mean, Dan's been rocking the beard and the mustache for a few years now, <laughs> and 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 this is not a slight at all. Um, I you know, I, I adore your brother, uh, but he kind of dresses like an old man too. So like if you if I didn't know either of you and I saw you next to each other i'd be like oh that dude's like 10 years older than you so. no i i did just cracks me up he cracks everybody up but uh but no he's my brother's a sweet kid yeah it's funny i um i was talking to someone this morning about you know because i said i was doing two and possibly three depending on if a person gets back to me tonight after rehearsal but i said um you know i was talking with judy in the morning and i was talking to you and i said you know, Dan was one of the people that I reached out to early on because, like, the whole idea for this was just I know a lot of interesting people, and I like to make time to have conversations with people, and I was doing it anyways. And then I realized I would often talk about other people that I knew and interesting stuff they're doing with other people, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, maybe I want to kind of share that, you know, um, but also just the idea that because we don't we as a society as a culture um don't spend as much time sitting down talking as we used to where you know electronically communicating but something's kind of lost with that um yeah and uh so your brother was you know i i made a list of people i wanted to talk to um because i was like oh there's got to be like 30 or 40 people come up with and you know after a half an hour, I had 176 people that, mm-hmm. you know, that I knew that I was like, this yeah. person I'd love to sit down for an hour or more sure. and talk to. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I reached out to Dan um, and, you know, of course he was, he was game, but he, he, was, he hadn't yet moved and he's just moved, mm-hmm. you know, in the last few weeks, I think. Yeah. And I was like, I'll get to Dan eventually. It's fine. And I was like, I kind of have an odd sense of pride that I was talking to you beforehand because you and I had that conversation maybe a year or two ago about um, when I first came back after being in Arizona for four mm-hmm. years and people making connection between myself and my brother Chris and they're like, oh, you're Chris Chase's brother. And I'm like, well, technically Chris Chase is my brother. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. that's been my... And I, I mean, you know, and now... 
in the last couple of years, just from doing a lot of artwork and stuff like that, I think sort of becoming a little, you know, may, maybe a little more even, but I was just like, no, I'm actually happy that I'm talking to Jonathan first. <laughs> it's like, you know, actually it's, uh, yeah, a million people know Dan for sure. And, yeah. uh, and yeah, it's, it's interesting for me musically because I think basically I, you know, around here, I had a band briefly because the timeline for me was a little different yeah. for, because I, I joined the Coast Guard uh, right out of high school and oh, I, didn't I was that. stationed in Japan. So, and then a year after I came home from Japan, I moved to Seattle. Okay. for five years and then I came home for a couple of years then I moved to Portland, Oregon for seven years and so for me I've lived 12 plus years away from the seacoast mm-hmm. and so and it's been a back and forth thing so sometimes when I was doing music you know I'd, I'd sort of start something here then I'd move somewhere else yeah. do something else and um, and yeah it's and, and also I, I guess the thing that I'm sort of playing catch up on um but I, but I appreciate that I can now is that when I first came home from Oregon, when I was still in Oregon, yeah. I was a waiter and um, I didn't work nearly as much as I have at White Heron. Yeah. And so, but I played music all the time Yeah. for years. You know, that's kind of what I did, you know, besides work. That was my main thing. And then yeah. when I came home at first, um, I had time and then I didn't have any time for years. And so... But now I'm just, I'm sort of, you know, it's probably good though, because, you know, it, it gives, I have a different sense of myself now and, and what I'm interested in. And really, I feel like one of the biggest things since I've moved home, I just kind of feel like I want to, we all have, uh, I don't know, you know what you can do. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's fun to challenge yourself. Sure. And it's, you know, there's a okay you probably saw this my dinner with andre yeah yeah that was a good film and i I liked where he was talking about the scottish mathematician who if he normally would open a door with the right his right hand he'd uh he'd decide to open it with his left because he he really felt like you know um it's good to not numb ourselves into patterns and which which i think is interesting And, and we all have you know you know we all like what we like for food or, you know, but, but I feel like in a creative sense, um, you know, for last, yeah, pretty much since I've been home, you know, I I had a couple of years where I was doing sort of singer songwriter project. And, um, and so last few years I've kind of been doing, you know, somewhere between surf oriented stuff but not but still trying to do it my own way but anyways I, I sort of I don't know I just have this I kind of have been missing a little bit more of the experimental side of what I used to do yeah because um, I think what I came home because there hasn't always been as much of it um, around here for the it, it's not that I'm really getting back into free jazz specifically although I still have all the CDs <laughs> I haven't listened to them in a while but yeah Oh man, I actually I think that all started with um, it. It did, and I still have it. John Coltrane live in Japan. Yep. I remember. I think it was the late '90s, and I went down to Bulmos, and I just knew I wanted to buy a John Coltrane CD. And 
I don't know why, maybe just because I had lived in Japan, I sure. decided to buy John that Coltrane connection. in Japan, and I couldn't just look it up on my phone. Right. And it turned out to be a tear your head off uh, free jazz era right. with uh, Pharaoh Sanders. And boy, at first I could, when I was listening, sometimes I couldn't get through more than a couple of minutes of something. And I just felt, what's the purpose? Um, but then I started hearing beyond the noise, beyond what felt like an attack or whatever. I, I started hearing, um, I don't know, just, just something. I, I, I think it it forced me to stop in my tracks and listen. I mean, mm. we live in an era where it's, it's easy, you know, it's very few people sit down and listen to a record and do nothing else. Right. And, and actually, you know, it's an ama- a crazy experience I had in Seattle that relates to that. There was this older guy that I got to know, and he was really into opera. And he'd have a few people that he knew over to his house. And one time, he just he said, all right, lay down on the floor. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, lay down on the floor. And... So he lay down on the floor, he turns the lights off and he cranks this opera. Yeah. And you were just like bathed in sound. There's nothing else. Yeah. There's no phone in your hand. There's no book. There's no person you're talking to. They wouldn't hear you anyways. Right. And it wasn't just that it, it wasn't that it was loud. It was probably louder than you would experience. It. <laughs> right. I don't think his neighbors liked it. Sure. But but it was an interesting experience because it it uh it forced me to just kind of really listen and you know when i was in oregon one of the things i really enjoyed a lot and i kind of been thinking about this more lately too is several friends that i had we would just get together and we just you know we'd have a beer we'd just drink tea and we would literally we would each bring a record to listen to or a CD or whatever. It didn't matter what format it was. Yeah. And we would all play things that in most cases, uh, none of us had ever heard before. Mm. I mean, it was kind of a group of people that I played music with that were into a lot of experimental stuff. But, you know, sometimes it was, you know, composers like Morton Feldman or, uh, you know, I, I have this great CD of uh, John Cage, uh, like prepared piano and rain sticks yeah. and like I still love a lot of the stuff but you know I realized since I've been home I sort of kind of got myself a little bit back into um, the rock thing which which actually has been fun and you know like the lookbacks we just finished this uh, a CD and um, which I have to finish the artwork in order and um, yeah I'm sure we'll go out and play and, and do that sort of thing but I, I, it's kind of been making me want to yeah, just do a little bit more um, listening to. I, I have an entire catalog of stuff I probably haven't listened to in several years. Yeah. And, and uh, when I do, it's like I'm going to, yeah, get my mind blown again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that'll inform your, uh, you know, at least seep into your music a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it, to me, it's not about kind of, um, you know, and even when I was playing in free jazz-related ensembles, in, in my case... It was never about, I was, as the bass player, I didn't have the loud saxophone, so I wasn't the tear your head off person. If anything, um, you know, I would be sometimes, a person sometimes that was trying to pull a little structure together. Yeah, you were holding it together. Well, you know, there's an interesting, there's a book called The New Dutch Swing, 
and it's about the whole um, Amsterdam uh, jazz scene, or in particular that whole experimental jazz scene. But uh, there's a drummer, um, Han Benink, and pianist uh, Misha Mengelson, I think it is. And apparently, they don't hang out. They don't really get along in normal life. But when they play, yeah. it's like fireworks. And in huh. fact, apparently, sometimes when they play, it's kind of like a tug of war. Yeah. And they sort of, you know, like they're pissing each other off while they play. Yeah. And then usually when they're done, they both are saying, did anybody record that? Right. You know, because it, you know, somehow it's this. So, but, you know, it, even though I, I've kind of, you know, I I had a an era where I have really been into a lot of that music. Um, it's not that I feel a strong urge to, to make a lot of it now, but... Uh, I, I like hearing other sounds. Like I, I don't know if you ever, you ever sit down and listen to a, uh, you know, Beach House, you know the band. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, and it doesn't matter, it, you know, records in general. It's yeah. Like, sometimes I just like to listen to the way a song unfolds. Yeah. Um, because in particular with this Beach House record, uh, Zebra, one of the first tracks it has you know this really beautiful the way it unfolds and this interesting melody and all that. But without the uh, the way it's composed in the studio and probably performed live, it would probably get boring pretty quickly because it's kind of the same thing over and over. But I don't care because yeah. <laughs> the way that they made it work on the record, um, it's it's like they added some other layer every every time they came to a different verse or chorus. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, there's some point they hit the the chorus and then there's this loud crash symbol you know over something that's just you know every so anyways I, i'm related to to layers and kind of sounds and for me it's not always about loud things it's just about um like this track that i i've been working on with um in mark mcelroy's studio uh i was experimenting with uh field recording stuff i did some recording here at my house um and uh, the peepers yeah. Uh, which boy I haven't heard them much lately yeah. it's been uh, chilly but um, the peepers are super loud and uh, oh and I bet you get some great sounds with that with the big yard in the front yeah well so I, I got um, you know there's this track I wrote sounds silly I wrote it about uh, my moped yeah <laughs> but uh, just just the feeling of it what, do you remember uh, the Love and Rockets album that had uh, uh shoot so alive so alive yeah, yeah but you know that track i feel speed yep dun, 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 dun. yep oh my god that's my favorite <laughs> probably love of rockets ever but um i think i was listening to that sometime in the last year and then one day i was i, I have a 1978 motor um mobilette and uh i've been riding that around and it doesn't go fast or anything right. like that but there's just just this feeling of being out in the out in the air and out in the open and just kind of you're you're not in your car you're not with plugged in with all right. your stuff you're just kind of like it's a loud little machine uh it's just humming along but it just kind of so anyways I, I wrote a a tune kind of about the the headspace it kind of puts me in and but um that's cool but i ended up getting uh you know recordings from uh the peepers here and yeah. actually recorded some uh some of the moped sounds and uh, actually mix some uh, shortwave radio stuff in there. And, nice. Um, but, it, you know, a lot of it is not trying to 
always be in some loud way or you know right i'm I'm interested in making everything musical but um yeah i just love albums where you hear um you know like the beatles you know their experimental phase it's Mm kind of like that's a lot of what makes it interesting oh yeah for sure yeah um yeah having like a multi-dimensional sonic palette that's not necessarily just traditional instruments always interests me. Um, one of the things that uh, I listen to, um, I'm mean, totally totally different type of music, but, uh, oh, thank you. Sure. Um, there's that uh, Nine Inch Nails did an album called The Fragile. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, it was a double album, but there's a lot of space yeah. on that record. It's less industrial than kind of his, you know, really well-known stuff and there's a lot it was also the first time he used acoustic instruments Uh instead of just electronic stuff but there's hearing it on vinyl on a really good sound system there's all sorts of stuff like you know there's sounds of like sand and wind you know kind of fading in and out of the tracks and it's just kind of a i don't know it takes you to a different place when there's you know it's a whole world of sound not just yeah you know guitar bass drums and synthesizers and whatever yeah no it's there's i think it's i think it's a good time because we we have all the distractions of you know all the devices and all yeah. everything going on it's um i feel like it's a good time as creative people to kind of you know push a few boundaries and yeah. It, it it's not about shocking people. It, to to me, sometimes I feel like it's about inviting people, or or maybe this way. It's like you probably have had the experience of reading a book, where I remember in high school, I'd be reading a book and I'd be so into the book, the phone would be ringing and it would take several rings before before I you notice. Yeah. And to me, it's like I I want to. Whether I can do it now or not, I don't know. Yeah. But it's like I, I aspire to write music that, you know, can kind of help draw, at least me. I, you know, it's, like, right. you know, I have to write for me. It's like, um, but, you know, I, I like music that takes me out of, it's not that I'm trying to hide from anything, the world, but, you know, it's kind of like that's a lot of what music and theater and art and all these different things are. It's like, I, I love that just whole experience where you're, you're, uh, yeah, you just forget where you are. Sure. Well, we were talking about movies before. Like, one of the things that I realized a couple of years ago when I was kind of talking about, you know, favorite films of mine, and I said, you know, one of the things that I noticed over and over again was a film that completely brings you into another world and you're you know sucked into it i mean one of one of my favorite films which is a very like critically maligned film but uh robert altman did a musical popeye film in 1980 i don't know if you remember i that. think robin I do. williams i played. think i, yeah, I did yeah. see it a long time ago. and it's yeah. it's really not like the cartoon at all mm-hmm. it's Harry Nilsson wrote all the songs for it. Mm-hmm. And most of them are not very good songs. Uh, but they built this entire um, seaside town to shoot it in, which 
I found out it was it was filmed on location in Malta, huh. and the town is still there today. It's like a tourist attraction, um, yeah. which is funny because it's the film is revered in certain parts of Europe. Um, I mean, you know, because Robert Altman is looked at as you know a, a a treasure and a lot. I mean. I think he's not as appreciated in this country as he is in other parts of the world necessarily. And but they're like, no, this is where you know the, the maestro made that. It's it's funny, but it's completely takes you outside of our world, and you're brought into this weird, bizarre like seaside town that everything's covered in barnacles, and everything is like dirty and dingy but it's just a it's it's a whole nother world and i think i remember being captivated by that as a kid and i mean the same thing with star wars i mean i've i've been a lifelong star wars fan um i mean and it wasn't just i mean and i love the films but the world so captivated me as a kid that that became sort of the focus of so much of my imagination when I was a child that like, you know, when I was playing with my friends, we were trying to create our own stories within that, that world that had been creative. And that's, I mean, that's no small feat to kind of take people out of their own world and bring them into a world that you've created. Yeah, no, I I remember in fact, somewhere (laughs) my mom gave me uh I don't remember what grade I was in, but I wrote a sequel to Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, probably in 1978. Yeah. Um, it wasn't very long. Um, I'm sure it was, it was awesome at the time. It was probably still better than the prequel. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and actually, it's it's really cute. It's like, uh, I don't know how many people out there have access to stuff they created when they were a child. I yeah. don't have a lot of it, but yeah, somewhere my mom, It's I just... I have so I, when I was a kid, I really wanted to to be a, an author, I guess. And actually, I still I still have some aspirations in that regard. I haven't I I always tend to bite off a little bit too much, um, but I, I I have some ideas, not about writing uh, fiction necessarily, but yeah. but anyways, at, at a young age, I, I have I have all these little stapled together mini books that I, I was writing. Nice. Uh, one was a one was a sequel to Jaws as well. Yeah, because Star Wars and Jaws, you know. Sure. Yeah. How did it? Did you ever see Jaws too? Uh, no. I was gonna wonder how it compared. <laughs> I think it was different. Probably pretty. pretty the char- I'm sure the characters were there. There was probably a di- oh yeah yeah yeah. I think there was a dinosaur of mine. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, so you basically so you, so in essence, you created Je- Jurassic World. There's a well, I you know that before Jura- Jurassic Park, yeah. Well, there's a um, Jurassic World was the the fourth one that came out mm-hmm. like two summers ago, and there's a shot early in the movie where because it's basically a th- I don't know, uh, I I'm assuming you haven't seen it. Seen it. It's I, I don't highly recommend it, <laughs> but there is a scene. It's basically there's a they've they've made a new theme park. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on the other island, and it's all under control, which of course quickly goes out of control. But there's this giant sea dinosaur that they have, and it's like Sea World, mm-hmm. but they have a crane that goes over it to feed it, and they have a 
great white shark that they're feeding and then the dinosaur jumps up and catches it but i'm like that's got to be some sort of like thumbing their nose at spielberg who helmed the first two uh um, you know with because huh. jaws was his first big picture oh uh, you know? yeah I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, that's, that's kind of, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of there, there's a lot of that fun stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, as, as I'm starting to have a little bit more free, you know, cause for years I, I just kind of worked on building, uh, way Heron. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, one of the best parts about it right now is even, even like today, cause it's funny cause sometimes people come, come in and they think I, I don't work anymore or whatever they say. Oh, I don't see you. And it's like, trust me, there's something to do. Every time I'm there, I usually see you and you're passing through. You're you're either on the phone or having a meeting with someone. Like, you look like you're busy. You know, you're, you're doing something or other. Well, it's it's getting it's getting more fun, though, because, uh, you know, even like today, I did run up to the cafe to check on something, but I ended up running into a few people I knew. And then next thing I know, somehow I end up sitting at one table talking to somebody for 15 minutes, yeah. sitting at another table. And but, um, but you know, like what, what what you were talking about earlier, it's kind of like you know, it feels like people don't take as much time to sit down face to face. And yeah. you know, that, that's one of the things I, I can appreciate about. Um, you know, I don't really think of myself as a businessman. Some somehow I still have a business. I work. Yeah. I know how to work. Yeah. But um. But but really a, a lot of what I, i'm not money motivated really yeah. in the sense i you know i really just you know what i enjoy about having a little cafe is just just seeing you know i see a lot of great people that i know there all the time and it's fun to just see people catch up and sure and uh it's fun to you know there are lots of people on their computers but it's also it's really fun to see people that I, I could tell a few people that intentionally bring in books and notebooks and yeah. they don't bring in any devices and, yeah. and, uh, but you know, I, I like it. It, it all works. And, um, but yeah, it's, and I, I think for me, tea, tea was like kind of what I, I've always, I think been attracted to things that have been on the fringe a little bit, sure. even though, um, you know, coffee's and, and coffee's king in the United States. It's like, um, I don't know. I, I just think. I've always been a tea drinker, and yeah, well, we we never had coffee in my house growing up. My mom is a tea drinker, mm-hmm. and I mean, my dad is a diet coke drinker, so you know, it wasn't wasn't like he was drinking coffee. So it was always interesting to me. I drank tea a lot as a kid, and it was usually just the you know the Lipton yeah. paper bag, and I realized. Um, because I would just dump sugar in it. I was like, I really just like drinking hot sugar water, and the yeah. tea was the secondary thing. You know, uh, the flavor wasn't 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 so much. Um, that was a secondary thing, the the flavor of the tea. But um, so, did you were you already a tea drinker before you moved to Japan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow. Well, I kind of uh, my. My parents have always pretty much been coffee drinkers, but we had tea in the house. And mm-hmm. I remember it felt like a special thing as a kid, you know, to to be able to drink tea. And I mean, you know, the teas that we had at the house were pretty much, you know, probably Red Rose and Sleepy Time and pretty much the things that most people had. Um, but, it's you know, it still felt like a special 
uh, a special thing. And then, um, which one was the one that had the little ceramic animals in the box? Ooh, that might have been, been Red, Red Rose. Because yeah. I always got excited when my mother finished a box of tea and got a new one at the grocery store because it meant that, because I got to have those and I had a collection for a while. So I think there was a reward incentive yeah. with tea early on. Sure. Yeah. 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 But no, and actually moving to Japan, I mean, most of what I had for tea early on was probably, you know, teabag tea there because, I, you know, I was on a Coast Guard station and they didn't really have anything special there. But um, once, you know, when I went into the city, if I stayed overnight somewhere, usually it was like a, um, a Sencha green tea bag. Um, but uh, honestly, a lot of their green tea tea bags were better than what a lot of people would get over here yeah. uh, in most cases. And then uh, I remember it was kind of, I wasn't seeking it, but uh, um, I remember at one point it was probably, I, I was looking for a gift for my parents and I found a little um, Kyusu, uh Japanese side handle teapot, which actually I think those are really cool. Yeah. And so I bought one and I bought some loose leaf tea and I uh, sent it home to my parents and then I and I bought some for myself. And uh, and it was kind of an ordeal making tea for myself at the Coast Guard station because, you know, the Coast Guard might not seem as military as a lot of outfits, but it's... It's the military. Yeah, it's the military. So you don't just go do what you want whenever you don't just go into the kitchen and right. you, you'd have to have permission right. to go turn the stove on, etc. But um but you know, over time it's kinda like uh you know, I, I really got I got hooked on tea in Japan and then when I um, moved home I was home for a year and then when I moved to Seattle, um I just happened to end up living down the street from Tea House Kuan Yin which uh, it's still there. It's under a different owner than the original owner, but um, I still love that place. It's a really great little um, little tea shop, very charming in the, uh, now I'm trying to remember what neighborhood, because I lived in, a, it was kind of between the U District and I don't remember now. It's been a long time. I'll have to, I'm going to be out there in the fall, so, and I've got some, some friends who live there, so I'll have to hunt it down. A couple of them who are from the seacoast originally. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, you'll have to stop there. But um, yeah, so I got I got hooked, you know, because I lived down the street from a, a really good tea shop. And then I used to go to Wajimaya, a Japanese grocery store. And I remember that's where I was like, oh, that's where I found the good stuff. Um, besides uh, Tea House Kuan And then um, when I was in Portland, Oregon years later, um, at first, you know, I somehow I ended up living down the street from the Dow of Tea, yeah. uh, the original uh, Dow of Tea on Belmont Street, which um, I later ended up working at. Um, and uh, yeah, I just got hooked. It's kind of like, and then when I when I moved home, I yeah, I, I wanted to keep working in the world of tea, and there just wasn't really anywhere to do that without moving to Boston or right, yeah, or some other larger city so um i decided i got a crazy idea and i decided well maybe i'll try starting my own little uh business and you know yeah. I, I didn't know that much about it but um but anyways it's 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 been interesting i mean we're still here it's like uh, amazingly it's 11 years and wow um, but uh but you know it's it's for me now and you know i i love 
you know, I, I think White Heron's been cool and we have great staff and we have fantastic customers and all that. And, but I'm not in my head, I'm not a business person 24 sure. seven. It's sure. kind of like, you know, um, I want to do a good job and, you know, and, uh, I, I like to keep things growing and keep things interesting, but I feel like part of keeping things interesting is trying to keep my own life interesting outside of, you know, cause we all, we all work doing something. Mm. Um, but I think in, in some ways it's like, do you, do you ever have the feeling of some of the things that used to frustrate you um, have also helped you? Sure. And because I, re- I remember for years people would say, oh, hey, it's Mr. T. It's the tea guy. <laughs> and, you know, occasionally I would say, oh, well, I do love tea, but I'm a person too. You know, right, right. I do other things as well. And I think for a while I kind of felt a little frustrated because I felt like, oh, geez, I've given up my identity you know because in service of the team now now everyone thinks i'm just a business person right and it's kind of like well you know i it's part of what i do but Mm -hmm. um yeah so i don't know anyways i I just like to challenge myself and kind of um stay yeah just stay growing and, and alive and i honestly i feel really fortunate because i've known a lot of people that are you know i'm I'm in my late 40s now, but the the thing is, I know people in their 60s that are just amazing. That are like, you know, I think it's a uh, live until you die, right? You know, and a lot of people, it feels like they start feeling um, like, oh, geez, I can't do this or I can't do that or, you know, and I, you know, I was reading yesterday in some book about, um, do you know, you know, Charles Bradley? Yeah. Uh, his debut album came out when he was 63. Yeah. Was. Yep. But, you know, there, there are people that are, it, it doesn't matter. I got know. a pin of Charles Bradley on the ceiling of my car. Yeah. Stop, you know, it's like, you know, stop stop telling yourself you can't do this or, you know, or making excuses for it. It's not like we can do whatever we want, but we might as well. Um, actually, have you, there's a, there's a, a cool book that um, I got a quote or two that really stuck with me and, and, helped me it's called the bear comes home Mm. um you'd probably like it it's like it's by this um guy named rafi zabor and uh he is a new york jazz drummer and his first book ended up uh winning the penn faulkner award Mm. and the bear the bear comes home is kind of a quirky concept it's uh it's about this jazz saxophone playing bear that exists in the world of all just human people yeah as a normal entity yeah somehow he's the only bear right nobody thinks twice about it right um but he's a sarcastic mofo and um but there's something that uh, the bear character um says that really stuck with me and he's talking about he makes some statement that's something to the effect of if you bring forth what is within you it will save you hmm and if you do not bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. That's interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. It sounds apoc- you know, apocalyptic, but um, you know the way that I interpreted it, and when I think of that, what it reminds me of is that, I, you know, side, sidebar tangent, but it's like the army: be all you can be. It's not. It's not about joining the army. To to me, it's about you know. Uh, if if there's something that you you're just burning to do, it doesn't. 
especially if it's not some huge money driven thing. It's like if you, you know, it's like actually it's I've been thinking about painting in the, in the world of painters a little bit uh, recently because I'm thinking that, you know, a lot of musicians, I don't know, everybody operates in a different way, but, you know, most painters paint to paint. Right. Right. You paint because you paint. That's what you do. Yep. And uh, it's not about whether you, how many paintings you think you can sell mm-hmm. or whatever. And, you know, I think when I was younger, I felt like music had to be something like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And uh, yeah, hopefully it accomplishes this. And, you know, a lot, I think there was too much measurement or dependency on measuring the results of not that measuring results isn't important with some right. things, but I feel like, you know, in an artistic sense, you know, I'm really lately, I'm really just writing music to write music. Mm-hmm. I'm not too worried about where it's going to go. And, you know, I feel like locally we're, you know, we're lucky to have really, uh, you know, a great example, <laughs> Guy Capslacho. Yeah. Guy just, Guy just writes to write. Yeah. He has no other option. I mean, he has whatever option he wants. But he's, you know, he's just a song uh, creating machine. And, and, you know, it's like, it's very inspiring. And, you know, it's cool to know him and several, several of the other um, people um, that are friends of Guy and that I'm getting to know pretty well now. Um, he puts out so much music. He and does. It's, it's a- <laughs> and it's amazing stuff, too. That's yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's funny because there are lots of there there are lots of guy projects. There's a project called Pale Wallace, which mm-hmm. is kind of like electronic, and he he just he just does what he does to to do it. Yeah, and um, actually, you know, that's kind of a refreshing attitude. You know, there aren't that many people that approach music in that way, um, and uh, so it, it's kind of fun. It's it's like because I went to uh, Writers in the Round. Uh, retreat last year on star island and uh one of guy's friends uh, jocelyn mckenzie uh she was the uh, songwriting facilitator she had a band uh, called the pearl and the beard that actually mm. toured with iron and wine and Andy defranco and all okay. over the place but jocelyn was amazing it's like she was just really well she still is but uh she's like just really really fun and kind of she's like a fire starter yeah it's like she'd suddenly say okay uh, I need you to pick two people in the room. You're going to form a band. You need to come up with a band name. Uh, you you can't play whatever instrument you normally play, and you got to come up with a song. Uh, you have ten minutes. Go. <laughs> and you're like, what? And you're looking around. And you're like, what am I going to play? And yeah. like, I don't know these people. Yeah. And uh, uh-huh. but but it's you know I, I like that sort of. Uh, it, it feels scary at first. You're like, I have not talked to any of these people. Right. And suddenly I'm I've supposed to create with them. But uh, you know, it, it's it's funny. Like I, some things people came up with were pretty darn amazing hmm. for ten minutes. You know, because by the time she had finished telling you. One minute had gone by, or something. So, oh wow! And it it wasn't about creating masterpiece. It was about, um, you know, push your boundaries and like if you don't, if if you don't have any crutches, uh, and and you have to get from point A to point B, what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, crawl? I don't know. Whatever. Well, and it's. I mean, I've learned and then subsequently grown creativity 
creatively when there are some boundaries and restrictions put on me. I may not, the thing that I create immediately because of those may not be something that is something that I'm necessarily proud of or in love with, but it informs the process. And then going forward, you're like, oh, well, I learned this, which I never would have learned had I approached that in my usual way. So, I mean, I do a lot of commission work and some of them are things that it never would have occurred to me to paint or I would have had no desire to do it. But, um, I mean, and with, with very few exceptions, I usually will do, you know, a commission if someone's looking for something. Uh, it always opens up new ideas and new kind of perspectives on how to approach stuff, especially now where I kind of go back and forth between watercolor and acrylic. Mm -hmm. When someone asks me to do something, I'm like, well, here are your options. And I could do either that one might make more sense to do it this way, or it might make more sense to do it that way. And a lot of times people will pick the one that is not how I would suggest. And I'm like, okay, well, you're the, you're the customer. So we'll do it that way. And then, but, and I'll, then I'll find, you know, different creative things that, uh, you know, to kind of get around the parameters of what they're doing. And then the next time around, I've got to, I'm like, well, I could try it that way because it, you know, worked or didn't work doing it that way. So, yeah, I mean, giving yourself restrictions and, you know, taking, taking away, like where you said you couldn't play the instrument that you normally played, taking away sort of your, you know, the old reliable forces you to get creative. Well, not, not only that, because in a lot of cases, yeah. uh, so let's just say the two people that I partnered with, let's say we all played guitar. Yeah. Suddenly none of us could play guitar. Right. Um, and some of us ended up playing a mop handle mm-hmm. uh, or whatever. And it's, it's silly, but it's, it, you know, it, it is what it is. And it's kind of like, yeah. if, if that's what you got to make, a sound with <laughs> that's just gotta make sound with you just do it in a different way but uh yeah it's i don't know it's so i i've really just been enjoying learning and kind of just learning really because you know i i feel like that's the biggest biggest thing is that we we're, well we can't learn at all ever you know it's mm-hmm. you know I, i've been practicing aikido for a few years uh Japanese martial art and it's one of the things I like about it there's no kicking or punching or anything like that it's it's really just about kind of moving with the energy that's coming towards you um, but it's not all floaty and new age either you mm-hmm. know, it, it's kind of you know it's it require one of the super challenges of Aikido it requires a lot of finesse you can't push you can't pull you can't muscle anything mm-hmm. which is super challenging for guys because we all tend to do that um, but anyways, it's like some of the Aikido techniques are called like uh, Ikkyo, uh, this, uh, the first technique. It's called the 30-year technique because no one's expected to master it in less than 30 years. Hmm. Most people don't think about practicing anything for that long. Yeah. Um, but what I like about that is instead of, I, I think when I first started, I felt challenged in the sense like, oh my God. Or, you know, like the way that you might as a teenager like, 
well, I'm not going to do that if it's going to take 30 years. Right. But, you know, you start to realize it's kind of like peeling peeling an onion. It's kind of like, it doesn't matter what it is, but, you know, it's you know, painting, music, um, poetry, Aikido. It's like as, as you peel the onion and, and you, you just, you unfold these layers. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's, and also being open and to basically... You know, I, I feel like as I learn new things, whatever it is, just this whole feeling of joy and kind of like, wow, uh, I never knew this or yeah. I never saw this that way or or, or whatever it is. Um, so it's, I, I feel like maybe the older I get, I'm just more interested in what's right in front of me. You yeah. Because, um, you know, I remember the feeling of growing up and feeling like, uh, particularly as a teenager, you know, I grew up. The funny thing is, I went to high school in the town that I still live in right, right now, although I've lived in... Well, it's not so much still, it's where yeah. you live in again. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, the, you know, and I remember the feeling as a teenager, like, oh my God, i got to get out of here. I can't. Like, And I always felt like the cool places, because at the time... Um, actually, some of the bands that I still love, uh, you know, the Smiths and, uh, you know, bands from... It's funny, my wife has been... Uh, she... We got a like a little rowing machine and kettlebell downstairs that she put on New Order and that yeah. sort of thing. And I'm like, they're still cool, yeah. you know. But uh, but I remember the feeling in high school, like, oh man, I gotta move to London or something, right? You know, and it's like yeah. and just realizing that it's pretty cool around here. It's its own way. Oh yeah. So I it's funny. It was uh, when I moved to Arizona, I was just done with the seacoast. I was like, eh, ugh, I know what that's about. Part of it was also it was so we had that we had that bad ice storm in two thousand eight and I was living on Hampton Beach at the time. We lost power. I mean, we lost power for like thirty six hours, which mm-hmm. to some people that's crazy. But I mean, there were parts of Maine that lost power for like five weeks. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but it got pretty cold, and I was like, I want to live somewhere where I, I don't like I don't like the cold. For sure. I but. don't I'm not a huge fan of the cold, but after moving to Arizona, I'm like I can handle the cold over over the hot. Like cuz it gets to a point where it's so hot. You can only take off so many clothes before you're naked and still sweating and completely uncomfortable. I mean, you can keep throwing blankets and stuff on when it's cold. Yeah. Um but it really took me leaving to kind of fall back in love with this area because yeah. I, I would come back every summer for a wedding or something like that and then each time I would come back I'd stay a little longer and be like oh yeah you can actually do this and I mean I I, I, I missed the ocean and I didn't it never even occurred to me when I was leaving to go to Arizona that I wouldn't be able to just hop in the car on a 20 minute drive and be at the ocean because yeah. the ocean's eight hours away from Arizona and it's 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 in LA at that point, which you know I love the Pacific Ocean, but you know you know the water there I, that's not necessarily the part of the Pacific that I'm I love so much. You know you yeah. get to Northern California and you know that's nice, but yeah. Um, and just since I've been back, just kind of realizing how rich, like artistically, this area is. And just kind of like, I mean, and that was another thing with uh, starting this project and just talking to people and getting different perspective, you know, getting different people's perspectives, not just on 
their art, but just kind of life. Cause there's a million interesting stories, you know, passing by on the street every day and, you know, just kind of getting a little slice of them. It's great. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of this, you know, similar experience moving away and coming home. I just kind of fell in love with it around here again. And I mean, there are different things here now that weren't here 20 years ago, Sure, but a lot of the, a lot of this things that make this area special are still here. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's, uh, I have, I'm going to Japan this summer and I'm going for two weeks yeah. and I have this crazy idea. Um, at least it's, I'm going to bring this lately. I've been playing uh, for guitar. I somehow last, you know, within this last year, I've started playing nylon string acoustic guitar mm-hmm. way more than for the longest time. It was always electric guitars. And, um, I just been loving it. It's just, it, it forces me to play in a different way. Like I've never really previously been a fingerstyle guitar player. Mm-hmm. I'm not like a, um, so Bob Halpern's like a, you know, blues fingerstyle wizard. I am definitely not that. Um, but I, but I love, it forces me to play in a different way. But anyways, what I'm, what I'm doing for Japan is because now playing guitar is just such a, I, I just can't not do it mm-hmm. for like a day. Yeah. And so I, I'm getting this little uh, Cordoba uh, nylon string travel guitar. Oh, nice. It's it's actually, it's I guess it's about the size of a baritone ukulele, but it has six strings and the fingerboard is almost as wide as a normal classical guitar fingerboard. Huh. Um, but I'm going to bring my iPad, uh, this little audio interface. Yeah. And... Um, some little gadgets and the, the while I'm in Japan, I'm just gonna you know because I, I I write I write stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of new ideas are in my phone until I know it. Like I have probably the last time I checked, I probably had a hundred and fifty something little snippets of right. audio right. that were like you know melody ideas or or things. But um, I don't know why. I just like the idea of of not just being able to noodle around or it's not like I'm going to go play Bob Dylan covers in Japan right. or anything, but, uh, <laughs> um, but no, I, I just, I like the idea of just, I, I have no expectation. Um, cause even when I was in Japan and the coast guard, I was in Hokkaido, which is the Northern Island and, um, going to, uh, Tokyo, uh, Osaka, Kyoto and, uh, Wakayama and none of which I have ever been to or know that much yeah. about, but, Anyways, it's going to be fun because, you know, I need to go with a, um, a compact amount of stuff. But while I'm there, I really, you know, I just plan to, if if uh, something strikes, I feel like, you know, if I feel like writing a song, I just want to write a song. And, sure. And it's like, so I like the idea of, uh, you know, there, there probably are things or ideas I'll get while I'm over sure. there. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And I, who knows? I'm not. I'm not planning to write uh, Japanese style music, but you never know. <laughs> Probably not. But it, it it'll be fun, and uh, it'd be interesting to see what what comes out of that as well. But hmm. do you speak Japanese? A little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. Uh, I had a Japanese girlfriend. I I came home from Japan, and I, I think either eighty nine or ninety. Um, and so I still remember some. I've forgotten a lot of it, but um, but I, I still, you know, Miki Ite, you know, go right. 
you know yeah <laughs> but it's like uh more more than sayonara and arigato right you know, there's a there's a lot more that i do and actually i think that's what what will be fun is being in that environment there'll be a lot of things that are familiar yeah and i'm sure some of it will come back to you right away too well at least i uh, hopefully i'll be able to understand more than i can currently speak sure i'm uh i took four years of no, five years of Spanish because I did it in eighth grade and then all through high school and then thought I had a handle on it and then spent, uh, you know, spent 10 days in Ecuador and mm-hmm. I, I very quickly stopped trying to converse because, you know, high school Spanish and, you know, Ecuadorian, you know, conversational Spanish are two very different things. Mm-hmm. But, and then where where I work now, there's, there's a, you know, I work at a mall and there's, I, I live or I work near near Lawrence and Lowell, and there's there's a certain faction of the population where Spanish is their first language. So I hear it a lot now, and I don't I don't speak it at all. But every once in a while, customers will be talking around me while they're waiting for me to do something, and I understand a bit more than what they. Oh, you're assume. like the pink one, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I've always thought about doing that, but I'm like, my my speaking Spanish is so remedial at best that yeah there have been a couple times where i've had a customer who doesn't speak any english and i'm just like i'm like all right lo siento <laughs> me espanol es muy mal but you know and then i'll try and get the idea across and, and i could tell they're like oh god like he is butchering my language but at least you know i'm making some sort of attempt to communicate yeah well it makes people smile sometimes just trying to hear hear someone uh yeah, converse in another language. Yeah, well, especially uh, you know the old, you know two of my brothers live in Europe and so I've spent some time over there and the you know the stereotype stereotype for a reason but you know Americans expect everyone to speak English or mm-hmm. you know a lot of Americans do and so if you make any sort of effort. I think it's appreciated to mm-hmm. some degree. And they're like, okay. And usually at some points, particularly in Europe, if you make an attempt, they're like, all right, stop. You're embarrassing both of us. I speak English. Let's mm-hmm. let's go from there. But uh, but thank you for at least trying to meet me halfway. So, you know. Well, one thing I, I realized is before uh, before you head out today, I should show you um, there's a there's a guitar I I purchased recently that. Um, you know who Joseph Arthur is? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, do you know him as a painter or a musician or both? A uh, musician primarily. I mean, I listened to, he was one of those people that I knew the name, but I didn't really know much of his music. And then he was on Mark Maron's podcast last year. And, oh, okay. Um, but I've seen some of his artwork too, uh, but not a ton of it. Do you have one of his pieces? I do. And it's a guitar. Really? And so, uh, so this is, I I don't remember if it was Oregon or Washington, but anyways, when I was living out west, I remember I at one point I started really getting into Peter Gabriel's uh, a lot of the musicians on his Real World label. Sure, and Joseph Arthur used to. Yeah, sing. and so I remember when I picked up Joseph Arthur's uh, debut album, or at least on Real World, and uh, boy, I, I just loved it. And I saw him when I was in Portland, Oregon. But um, anyways, I, I never knew that much about him other than just, you know, musically. And, and I liked him um, live. He was he was cool. He he, um, he played solo with like two loopers and he's mm-hmm. he's really good at all that stuff. But anyways, I um, 
in the last couple of years, I started doing, I took a uh, couple of guitar repair courses with um, Scott Miller in, in Madbury. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so I started getting into, you know, more, um, you know, fixing my own stuff. But so I occasionally purchase fretboard journal and there happened to be this article on Joseph Arthur and I had no idea that he painted guitars. Mm. And so it was funny. So in, in the article, there was a picture of his, probably his living room and every guitar, whether it was a Godin from, you know, Canada or a Gibson or whatever, he's painted so many of his guitars and in reading this article written by him, um, or this interview, it was pretty cool because he was really talking about he, you know, as a as a painter, he feels like he's not doing all this to to look cool or, or whatever. It's kind of like it's his way of like it's his way of branding something or sure. kind of adding personality or making something come alive mm. visually for himself. And it just happened that um, because I've been really getting into nylon string guitar, uh, Godin from Canada, they make seagull guitars and Art Luthery and all that. Um, well, they make this, it's called a Multiac. And um, I think when I first saw a Multiac, I thought they looked kind of a little goofy. Um, it's, a, it's an electric, uh, an acoustic electric nylon string. Um, but they, they play great. And actually, I have a ton of respect for Godin guitars now. And uh, a lot of Godin guitars are actually... Uh, some parts of them or some of the guitars are assembled in Berlin, New Hampshire. Hmm. So um, it's cool talking about buying local. Sure. You know, yeah. And um, but anyways, uh, I saw a guitar, a Joseph Arthur painted guitar um, listed this Multiac and I had my eye on it and it was on eBay and um, I kept watching it. It was a little more money than I wanted to spend at the time, but um, then it was gone. And I thought, well, Okay, it's gone. Yeah. I'm not going to think. Uh, uh, and uh, he's, he still paints uh, guitars, but none of the, the nylon string one, just that one that I saw. Well, a couple weeks later, it popped up again. Maybe somebody bought it and didn't pay or something. Right. And, same uh, seller. Yeah, same seller. It's, yeah. They're all one of a kind, the, the hand-painted ones, because, I mean... I just wondered if the person bought it to resell it. So No, yeah. I, I don't think so. No, yeah. and... Um, and so it, it's pretty interesting. It's 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 pretty wild, but I just I just love it because I, I mean, it's just the feeling of uh, it's kind of cool, you know, a musician that I've really dug for the last twenty years, yeah. and I, I've seen him play, and to you know have a, a guitar that I love for the guitar itself, but it's also a piece of his um, his original art, yeah, which is cool, and uh, so I'll have to show you that for you. Really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll so. check it out. I think the only one of his albums I own. It's not actually one of his albums per se. He's a he's got that project Fistful of Mercy. Oh, I didn't know. That. It's it's him and Danny Harrison, George Harrison's son, and oh, yeah. Ben okay. Harper. Sure. And they all and I forget who plays drums on it, but it's all three of them write. All three of them. Huh. I think I think Joseph Arthur might play bass in that project, and Ben Harper and Danny oh. Harrison play guitar. But and you know Ben Ben Harper plays a slide guitar most of the time a hollow body slide guitar but yeah and i and at the time when that came out because i was a big i still am a big ben harper fan but that was sort of my entry point into it and i was like i don't know who this joseph arthur guy is and then when i did some research i'm like oh i actually do know who this guy is yeah i just 
was aware of him years before and then kind of lost touch and yeah so it was interesting that he's come up a couple times in the last like six months yeah i mean you know same thing for me it's like i hadn't thought about him in a while and uh i think before i saw that guitar i started thinking about him again or i started uh because i had a i don't know what happened to my original copy of his his real world uh Mm -hmm. debut album but um anyways I, i picked up another copy of it and somehow i just I think I, I got thinking about him probably from that fretboard journal article mm-hmm. and then uh, I don't know I sort of like be I just decided okay well I'm gonna I'm gonna take the plunge on that guitar and yeah. I'll just sell something else I have yeah so uh, that's cool so that's what I did nice but nice um, did that did, I'm trying to remember what the real world album is his first one but did it have the little Big Co- City Secrets, I think. What's the cover look like? The cover know? is him. He's, he's so like, like a black and white photo. Uh, s- almost not black and white, but it's kind of like pretty does, dark. Doesn't have a lot of color in it. Yeah. I think it's just him not wearing a shirt, and it just shows some tattoo he's wearing or something, mm. or it has. But interesting. I don't think I've heard that one. No, that that's that's a good record. Hmm. That's a really good one. But. I don't know yeah. how, how much of real world catalog is in print now in the United States because last because uh, Peter Gabriel's stuff is all like he's a free agent now and mm-hmm. so every like eighteen months a different record label in the U.S. releases it and then it goes out of print again and then so and I don't know oh, all his back catalog stuff that's probably getting sold from. Yeah, and company, Real company. World for a while was distributed through Geffen when he was on Geffen in the United States, but that's like he's not on that anymore. So I don't know who distributes Real World, you know, at this particular moment in yeah. time. I I've been going th- through something lately because I realized there's a lot that I feel like that's been informing. I don't know. Do, do you feel like sometimes you look back 20 years and you realize, geez, something I'm totally interested in doing right now that I haven't thought about in a long time or whatever, but, or, you know, these seeds that have been planted yeah. a long time ago. Because the funny thing, and a lot of people would be surprised, but when I lived in Seattle at the height of the grunge era, mm-hmm. like I remember I was a waiter and I waited on Alice in Chains. Mm-hmm. And one of, my, uh, one of my coworkers used to be in a band with Lane Staley. Uh, is that, that's his name, right? Yep. Lane Staley, yeah. Yep. And... Uh, but I remember waiting on that at the time. and But I just, I had no interest in, uh, at the time, I was just really, I was listening to a lot of world music. And the other thing that was a blessing in disguise, it was the poorest time of my life. I remember some job fell through and uh, I had $17 to eat for a week mm. at one point and I, I could barely pay my rent. But the blessing that came out of it was because I've always been a voracious music consumer and at least a listener, and I had no money to buy anything. Mm-hmm. And so all of the music that I listened to at that time was stuff I had to find at the library. Mm-hmm. And so thankfully in Seattle and then at some point when I lived in Edmonds, Washington, both libraries were very interesting. And so what I did is Anything that looked remotely interesting to me, I borrowed. Mm-hmm. If I didn't like it, I just returned it. Right. But some music that I love above anything else, 
is still so dear to me and it's like if i hadn't been so poor right i i wouldn't know about it and there's been i've, I've had this been going through this nostalgic phase recently for not for my glory days or anything like that really it's it's really about um if i've lost track of any music that like oh my god whatever happened to that cd right. or you know i there are certain things that i feel like i've lost over the years and that i've been you know over time picking up or and it's funny some stuff i remember taking out of the library um you know years later or special that's when you there was no internet to just basically like if you wanted something you special yeah, ordered it yeah for you'd sure go to the store and you'd wait a few weeks yeah and that was quick yeah you know but but it felt even amazing to get things you know it's mm-hmm. like i had an experience in seattle a friend took me to i think it was called the owl and thistle it was underneath the monorail track area and it was this um probably like coffee house and my friend said oh well there's this this poet from new york reading uh, we should go and at the time i don't know i just didn't really care that particular day right but i thought all right well if you want to go let's go and i was blown away this guy ira cohen who has since passed on um uh an amazing poet that a lot of people have never heard of and i was just so captivated in fact i remember either the first or one of the first uh, poems Ira Cohen read it um, you know imagine Jean Cocteau is is the uh, the poem and I still remember those words I remember he was this you know crazy looking older guy with this big beard and yeah. this purple shirt with stars all over it and there's somebody <laughs> blowing didgeridoo and whatever but the the weird thing was Years later, once I moved home, I went down to Providence with a friend and I was in some used uh, CD shop and I found some CD and it said Ira Cohen. And I thought, there's no way, like I got so obsessed with Ira Cohen, I kept trying to find the only book he had was out of print. And I remember at one point going to a bookstore, they wrote to the publisher and it turned out there were two remainder copies left Mm. and I got one. Wow. And, um, but so anyways, in Rhode Island, I'm I'm in the CD shop and I I see the CD and it says, um, Ira Cohen. And I'm like, there's no way it can be the same guy. Well, I look on the back, imagine Jean Cocteau. (laughs) Oh my God. It's gotta be. And I picked it up and, you know, recently I, I just... I was like, what happened? And I just found it. Yeah. Uh, I found it last week and I was like, all right, I gotta listen to that. Nice. I, uh, I had a moment like that. Uh, there was, and it was one of those things that I had, I'm sure if I had consciously been thinking about it, I could have easily, you know, found it used on Amazon or eBay or something like that. But there was this various artist compilation that I had the cassette when I was in high school. It was something that Sony had put out. It was like a, it was basically like a sampler, except for they sold them back then, and it was a bunch of new stuff. But a lot of times, it was unreleased songs, and uh-huh. it was the song. It was a, it was there was a live Indigo Girls song on there, and I'm a huge Indigo Girls fan, particularly Amy Ray, because uh-huh. um, they write separately, and <clears throat> it was one of their songs, but it was a live version, and that was the song that like got me like captivated by the indigo girls and it's not like 
it was a song that's on one of their albums but not that version of it uh-huh. and then and i just remembered you know i used to make mixtapes for people all the time and i'd put that on there put that on there and i actually wore out the tape that it was from you know the tape snapped from uh-huh. and then i was in lost coast you know just down the street yeah two weeks ago and they had a cd copy of that particular compilation album which i had never seen it on cd you know it was i mean it came out in 1992 so it was 25 years ago that i had that tape and it was just you know without hesitation i was like yeah i'll get this and you know they're like oh have you heard this i'm like actually i have but it was just such a i was like i put it in and all the like the initial feelings of finding something that speaks to you in a way that you've never quite connected with something before like coming back i was like all right like i didn't even remember that i had like i didn't even remember that it was that important a thing to me until it played i mean i knew i looked on the back of it and i was like right there's a live version and i think i like it and then i put it on and i was like oh wait this had this effect on me so that was kind of a that was a pretty cool thing that day but you know trying to put it into words what a connection like that or you know like you finding that cd with you know the you know there's not at least i haven't found the the accurate words to kind of describe like how that effect kind of washes over you and you're just like ah this is great but you know it's such a unique thing but it's well it's it's amazing all the things that we experience that basically you know, when I first heard Jeff Buckley, I think it was probably from one of those CMJ. CMJ, right? yeah, yeah, one of those CMJ free CDs or whatever. And so I first heard Jeff Buckley. I don't remember what the tune was, and I'm boy, I'm trying to remember. I don't know when. Growing up in the Portsmouth area, I always loved rock bottom records so much, and. I don't remember when Rock Bottom closed, but I might I think it was like '98. Well, it's it's possible. I feel like I remember picking up uh, a Jeff Buckley EP, and it turns out the Jeff Buckley EP I picked up, which I still have, is super rare. It's called Peyote Radio Theater. Yeah, that is rare. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and that has the that version of Kangaroo mm. on it. I think, and I, I think. think it's a promotional only EP. Like I don't think it was actually sold, but Kevin sold, uh, you know, promo CDs there all the time. Oh yeah, but anyways, it's like I and then you know I saw Jeff Buckley in Boston once or twice, and then uh, interestingly, after he died in portland oregon when they had that i don't did you see that documentary that came out on on jeff buckley there's been a couple i saw one of them but i'm not sh- i don't remember what it was called. i think i think it was a french filmmaker or something that put it out but jeff buckley's mom yeah actually she uh you know i went to um you know one of the screenings of it and she basically stood there giving everyone hugs wow after um and you could wow I got a hug from Jeff Buckley's mom. That's pretty great. It was um, it's interesting, kind of going going back to the conversation I had earlier today with uh, Judy. So, um, and you know how he died. He 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 drowned. Um, do you know who he was with when he was swimming? 
because uh, one of his friends I used to know him. and I think it was in that I if it's the same film I think they might have even interviewed he was with Chris Cornell oh yeah because yeah. wow. uh, there's a song in Chris Cornell's first solo album that was dedicated to him that was about it it's called Sweet Euphoria um, but it was very interesting because I had that thought like a week ago I was like oh man well because I don't, I don't, I'm not a particularly religious person, or I don't know why it's a particular, I'm not a religious person. I don't necessarily think that there's an afterworld, but I was like, yeah, if there is one, you know, maybe they're hanging out again, you know, who knows? Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I guess that's a good spot to, uh, <laughs> to, to stop. I don't All know. Right. Unless you had any other. No, Thoughts? no, that's that's pretty much it. But it's it's good to catch up yeah. with you, and uh, yeah, it's it's good. To, you know, it, it's kind of timely, you know, to get together and talk about all this stuff because you know, uh, last week. Um, all right, one other thing. But yeah. last week I popped into River Run, and um, you know, a friend had recommended this book, um, The War of Art, huh. um, which I just started reading. It's by. It's by the author of... Is River Run the one that's in the spot that Rock Bottom used to be in? Yes, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I picked it up. And so, you know what happened? Like, I had gone to... It's it's this this whole connection, this this art domino effect mm. that's interesting. So, I haven't, like... I think it was last, last Friday? I don't know. Recently was my birthday. And it was a Friday, and I went to a Creative Mornings event. Um, in Portsmouth and Bob Lord from Paramount Recordings was there speaking that was it was very cool like I I wanted to go you know experience that on my birthday and then this woman Amy uh, Willette uh, who's related to Creative Mornings uh, I don't know somehow she just talked started talking about that book and she was surprised I hadn't heard of it or, mm. or had read it um, and so I walked right down a river run and I ordered it and uh, this woman Judy, do you, do you know Judy? Maybe you don't. She's a really really good painter. Um, she she works at Rock uh, at uh, not Rock Bottom Records. She works mm-hmm. at River Run Books. Huh. But I ordered the book. She owns the book, and she said she loves it so much. She reads it once a year. Huh. Um, what is it called again? It's called The War of Art. The War instead of, art. of the Art of War. Yeah. Right. Um, but somehow she and I got into a discussion about. Um, painting and art and kind of what's happening locally and kind of uh, mm-hmm. you know it started bringing up all these memories of a lot of artistic experiences of, of cool things I experienced at West that you know I, there was this um, this warehouse building not abandoned but um, it was a warehouse building that was probably unoccupied that a bunch of artists made some deal with the owner um, and they rented it out for a month and they, it was a big building and the whole building ended up being full of all these different art installations that would be open on the weekend so mm-hmm. you'd walk through and there would be different music performances theatrical performances all this different art on, yeah you know multiple floors and um there was also this other experience in portland oregon there was this uh this motel this old like deco art deco era motel or something that was changing hands and somebody put up um it there ended up being this art exhibit in all the different rooms so you'd go from room to room yeah. and uh, cool. all these different artists on display but yeah so it's it's kind of it's it's been cool to remember all that stuff and kind of it, it makes me want to look more for you know what's happening here, yeah. here and now so cool anyways thanks. yeah thank you